On October 20th, 1947, a congressional committee began hearings on un-American activities in the movie industry. People with unpopular political opinions were accused of subversion and lost their jobs. They were blacklisted. From Hollywood, the blacklist spread to businesses and universities, institutions and communities across the country. Thousands became the targets of denunciations, suspicion, and fear. This is the story of one man and his family and their life under the blacklist for 15 years. Blacklisted, episode three, a long way from home. On May 3rd, 1951, a few days after my sixth birthday, my older brother Jim, my mother Barbara, her sister Janet and I left Los Angeles and landed in Mexico City. I spotted my father Gordon at the airport, a short gray-haired man of 50 in a monocle and goatee, in a sea of brown faces, waiting behind the glass of the passport control. I felt an enormous relief. I hadn't told anyone, but for almost a year, I'd been pretty certain he was dead. Hello, Angel. My mother was still on two crutches from a recent hip operation. Oh, no, I'm fine. And the guards let us through customs quickly. And into the old Chrysler my father had fled across the border in nine months before. He drove us 40 miles to our new home in Cuernavaca, a small town in the mountains of Morelos. The last hundred yards was down a dirt road he joked no one knew about but us. Our huge French poodle, Mimi, had arrived in a cargo crate the day before. I'd never seen her so excited. After nearly a year, we were a family again. Jim and I got a room near our Aunt Janet in the back of the house. Through the open windows, I could feel the dry evening heat and hear my father and mother on the veranda. People to the committee, Gordon. The most ludicrous thing I ever heard. That must be half the writers in Hollywood. At sunset, I'd had an amazing view from there of the snow-capped peaks of two volcanoes, Popocatépetl and Iztaccíhuatl, a hundred miles away. Sometimes at night, my father said, if you angled the shortwave radio just right, you could even hear the United States. Back home, the news wasn't good. Some American activities committee today heard its most detailed public testimony about communist operations. Film writer and former communist Richard J. Collins named 40 writers, producers, and others as fellow communist leaders in the movie colony. Sometimes publicly and sometimes behind closed doors, the committee was giving former Hollywood Communist Party members a chance to show their patriotism and protect their jobs by naming other party members they had known. Few people were named more often than Gordon Kahn.
My father had been one of the first screenwriters to be identified as a communist during the committee's hearings over three years before in 1947. He'd also been blacklisted and hadn't worked a day since under his own name. Now the committee was back, hundreds of others in the film business lived in daily dread of being called or identified as communists by others and losing their jobs and reputations too. One of them was my mother's closest friend. Dear Barbara, every, every morning, morning I go to the studio, drag myself through the day, smile, greet people, and wonder how they'll act if I get called. I take sleeping pills at night and wake up pills to get me going through the day. Disavowing allegiance to the Soviet Union is easy, but it follows and this is where the anguish this comes is where in. the anguish that one comes must in. be anti the party leadership that one must be anti the party leadership in our own country too and name their names and i don't know what i'll do if my luck can't hold out forever i have to take my turn on the stand whatever happens remember barbara i will always love you Two weeks after we arrived in Mexico, Mother's friend got her subpoena and named 84 people, including... Gordon Kahn. Kahn, a screenwriter, dodged a committee subpoena over nine months ago and is reported to be in Mexico. The committee may order him back, Chairman Veldi asserted. We're anxious to talk to him. In other news, more suspicious communists were fired from government jobs as president... Since he arrived in Mexico, my father had made efforts to keep our stay there as safe and open-ended as possible. To avoid going anywhere near the States, my father had secured residency papers from the Mexican government at great expense. As long as he obeyed the laws of Mexico and refrained from politics, we could live on his savings in peace and at the current exchange rate of the peso very well. Darling Lucy, he wrote an old family friend in Hollywood. Guys who have been here for years, real mavens in the housing line, say our house is the finest in New Spain. The weather of Cuernavaca is probably the best on the continent. Right now, we're in the rainy season, but the elements have the decency to wait until the entire household is in bed. And then it pours. In the morning, the mountains are beautifully washed, and the air is of amazing clarity. I'm getting to like this place more every day. And it will take a hell of a lot to pry me away from here. It took less than five months to prove him wrong. At the start of October, officers of the Seguridad, the Mexican FBI, broke into the Mexico City hotel room of Gus Hall, the former head of the American Communist Party, and at gunpoint extradited him to the FBI in Texas. Two days later, the local press attacked American communists in Cuernavaca. Once again, the man most often named was Gordon Kahn. Gordon Kahn, a small man in a monocle recalled in Hollywood as a writer of e-pictures, has shattered the tranquility of the once pleasant resort of Cuernavaca with his communist crony. As usual in his letters to friends, my father laughed it off. The front page of the Excelsior, the Mexico City Daily, had a headline. Gordon Kahn establishes communist New Hollywood in Cuernavaca. 
and proceeds to relate with exquisite freedom from facts that I have organized a group of fugitive writers and formed a company to make pictures. The whole thing had little adverse effect so far, except that bounders, renegades, and strolling musicians are cuddling up to me, asking for jobs. <laughs> a Mexican friend of mine, after shaking his head over the stupidities regarding this nation's politics, said, how the press has degenerated. Degenerated from what? <laughs> <laughs> but he must have been frightened. He was certain the developments had all the traces of an effort by J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI. Update the Bureau transmittal slips of last December and February to the ambassador in Mexico, as it seems possible that the time is arriving for direct action of some kind. As I learned when I finally read my father's FBI files, he was right. For the ambassador to the Department of State on October 10, 1951. As I informed Director Hoover, one possibility might be for our embassy informally to furnish a list of such known American communists in Mexico to the Mexican police authorities with a hint that if action of some kind were taken against them, the embassy would not interest itself particularly in their defense. This would be done on the theory that it might be better to keep them in the United States where, as Mr. Hoover has pointed out, the police powers of our government are so much more complete and effective. My father was a naturalized American citizen born in Hungary. If he were deported, the U.S. State Department could begin proceedings to take away his citizenship. Without the protection of Mexico, he could become a man without a country. At the start of his stay in Mexico, my father had made friends with a Mr. Zamudio, an expansive, charming businessman who claimed to have the ear of the Mexican president and had helped my father get his residency papers in record time. Abono, 225 pesos que corresponden a intereses sobre nuestra aceptación por 15,000 pesos al primero de abril. In return, my father had invested some of his savings in Mr. Zamudio's import and export operations. Now, to make his connection with Mexico even firmer, he lent Mr. Zamudio the rest of his cash, including all the money from the sale of our house in California. My father never told me if he joined the Communist Party. He never thought it was anybody's business but his own. One thing is certain, if he believed in anything, it was the right to have an independent point of view. Dear Lou, it occurs to me that you may have a quiet chuckle to yourself at the evidence that a man of my political inclination should be involved in finance. I chuckle myself, a little bitterly, however. but. Since they blacked out my name in what I regard as an even shabbier market, the films, and under the terms of my stay in Mexico, I can't work for a salary here. I have no apology, neither to the right hand nor the left. Under their new arrangement, my father would be better off financially than ever. Mr. Zamudio was offering a generous monthly interest rate that would cover all our expenses. After 20 years of writing for others, my father could finally put Hollywood behind him and write something for himself. Not another Hollywood Western, but a novel that his children might one day read with pride. Deserted, I wondered 
and doubted and feared across all of Europe and the ocean until I stood where you stand, as you stand, Hildeto. He called it a long way from home. The story of a 17-year-old Mexican-American named Gilberto, who flees to Mexico to avoid serving in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. Rooted in the politics of the 50s, the novel also drew deeply on his own past at the turn of the century, when he was a stranger in a new land called America. At age six, he'd arrived from Hungary on New York's Lower East Side with his mother, Lottie, and younger brother, Ben. Chaim, his father, had left three years before and landed nothing better than a job as a slaughterhouse skinner in a tiny flat on Avenue C. Lottie, the mother and fighter in the family, got to work. She took in wash, rented out a room, sent the kids to synagogue, public school, and night school, and did what she could to open up America to her relatives overseas. My father never talked much about those early years of poverty in New York, but I have a studio portrait of his family from 1915. There were six kids by then, and they're all dressed up, holding perfectly still for the camera, looking somber and prosperous. It's an illusion. Unable to afford both the picture and the trolley fare that day, they'd walk for hours from the Lower East Side to the photographers in the Bronx. They were exhausted, and their feet ached. Of the group, my father seems the most alert, Stand still, looking straight back at the camera. The sun rose and set on Gershi, as they called him. At age 12, he'd just won the English prize as the best writer in his school, mastering a language he'd barely spoken a few years before and he'd already decided that a writer was what he was going to be, who would go everywhere, see everything, and cover America from every angle he could. Within six months, Jim and I were fluent in Spanish and taking the bus on our own every day from home to the Socalo downtown in school. The unpaved route, full of ruts, wild chickens, and an occasional dead burrow or dog, offered an unobstructed view of Mexican life. Music poured continually from the darkened cantinas nearby. On one ride, a drunk young woman stumbled out from a cantina into the light and in a voice brimming with a broken heart, sang a popular tune called No Vale Nada La Vida, Life is Worth Nothing. The people on the bus knew what she meant. As they taught us in school, from the dawn of their history, the proud and bloodied common people of Mexico had fought against invaders and lost. Against the Aztecs and lost. Against the Spanish and lost. Against the French and lost. Against the Texans when they were a nation and against the Americans when Texas was a state. Every Mexican child knew and retold the stories of conquest and suffering, revolution and oppression that erupted without warning and spilled across the Mexican landscape. 
and in every town and village square, massive statues to the slaughtered heroes of those convulsions jutted to the sky. Over the Socalo of Cuernavaca brooded the 10-meter monument to Morelos, and every school, including ours, marched there half a dozen times a year to stand in its shadow, sing the eight stanzas of the national anthem, and listen to a speech that recalled Mexico's brutal past and foretold her glorious future. Not an instant of that glory belonged to Jim and me. As my classmates reminded us, we were gringos from the north. In the blood-drenched past of Mexico, we were the bad guys. In the glorious future, we had no place. I'd heard that message before in California. The word kids called me then was communist. But to me, it meant the same. Outsider, get out. You don't belong. Still, I kept trying to fit in. I played soccer. I memorized the national anthem. I drank water straight from the tap. I got salmonella. Simona, necesito la medicina para el niño. Caras dos horas. Get some rest. During the week I lay recovering in my mother and father's bed, I spent a lot of time listening to the shortwave radio and falling asleep at night to its crackling cargo of programs from the States. 14,000 wildly cheering legionnaires in New York hear General Eisenhower deliver a fighting attack on communism. Does anyone here think that America will ever surrender to that kind of a threat or talk? I'd been here in Mexico for almost three years now, and I wondered if I'd ever see the United States again. Superman. The land where I'd been born, that never lost a war, and that had the A-bomb, the biggest weapon in the world. Sometimes I'd drift off and dream I was back home. But far more sinister to Americans was home front communism. From their ranks will come the saboteurs, spies, and subversives should World War III be forced upon America. And then I'd remember we weren't welcome there either. All because of something bewildering called politics that made us communists to the Americans, gringos to the Mexicans, and outsiders wherever we went. One of the greatest spy dramas in the nation's history reaches its climax as Julius Rosenberg and Mrs. Ethel Rosenberg, convicted of revealing atomic secrets to the Russians, enter the federal building in New York to hear their doom in the electric chair. And my dreams would darken, and I'd be on the front lawn, rolling down the hill, away from the house, fighting someone whose face I couldn't see, my punches thick and sluggish rolling farther and farther from my family, where they stood frozen on the veranda, calling out my name. Two days later, they executed the Rosenbergs.
The next day, I saw a drawing of their execution in the Mexican newspaper. A local artist, who made his living going from table to table at the Socalo drawing tourists' faces, had depicted Julius and Ethel Rosenberg side by side in adjoining electric chairs. They looked exactly like my father and mother on the porch. The American people aren't a bad lot at all, but you, you, you frighten them and they will strike back. Back home, the committee was broadening its investigation of subversion to include the clergy, universities, Charlie Chaplin, Albert Einstein, and anyone who had spoken out for clemency for the Rosenbergs. Dear Mr. Hoover, I am unalterably opposed to communism in all its forms and always have been. I have never knowingly signed any petitions or joined any organizations having communist affiliations. If you were at all concerned about your future, you were advised to write a letter to the committee or the FBI telling them you were on their side. I respectfully request an opportunity to... I don't think my father ever knew, but one of those correspondents was a member of his own family who had been afraid of losing his government job. Be assured of my cooperation. It was looking like we were going to be in Mexico a long time. <laughs> I would look for other satisfactions, like professional wrestling. On his next visit from Mexico City, Mr. Zamudio had promised to bring me a white satin mask, like the one worn by the country's top professional wrestler, El Santo, the Saint, a notoriously dirty fighter who never lost a match. El Santo had come to Cuernavaca recently, and I'd seen him fight, casting dust in his enemy's eyes kneeing them in the groin, and never letting anyone see his face. Who knows? Maybe he was a gringo, too. Dear Lou, a frozen custard wagon has made its appearance in the plaza here. At the touch of a lever and 60 centavos, a gleaming chromium-plated sphincter opens, gushing ice cream with a great surge of power. <laughs> 1953 saw a lot of new Americans in Cuernavaca for the sun, the cheap living, and the opportunity to make a new start. One of them started the town's first soft ice cream business, became a friend of my father's, and invited him to invest. Certain the ice cream would be as big a hit in Mexico as cotton candy. My father decided to call back his loan to Mr. Zamudio and put it in the new venture. But Mr. Zamudio wasn't answering. October 20, 1953, called Zamudio to inform him of needed 17,500 pesos by first of month. Didn't hear from him. November 16, left memo for Don Jorge about 40,000 by January 1. No reply. January 7th. No action from Zamudio. Why is he avoiding me? As collateral on the loan, Mr. Zamudio had left some securities for my father in a safety deposit box in Mexico City. When my father's attorney opened the box, the securities were gone. March 2nd. Disastrous news from Orozco as to papers. Horrible situation looming. Zamudio ducking out. Zamudio, apparently, had never invested my father's money and had been sending a little of it back as interest every month to play him along. Mother was in New Hampshire taking care of her sick father and for a while at least, 
My father was able to conceal the bad news, not only from Jim and me, but from her. But it was looking like Mr. Zamudio had skipped out with every penny we had. Three weeks later in Mexico City, a month short of his 51st birthday while trying to track down Zamudio for a meeting, Joe. my father collapsed on the street. Joe. His youngest brother, Joe, who was visiting from the States, helped him to a hotel where my father managed to pull himself together. The next day, my father's doctor told him that he had survived a heart attack. My father made Joe promise to keep the attack a secret. To an old friend, my father confided the little he had to say. Dear Lucy, my electrocardiogram looked like a tangled fishing line. I have little to say about myself, dear, which has not been said better. Though with my treacherous writer's memory, I cannot recall by whom, as follows. Having embraced the character of an honest man and friend to rational liberty, I have no business to repine at the mediocrity of fortune which I knew to be its consequence. I miss your cheerful cackle over the phone and over the many Sierras that divide me from my friends. Immense affection to Joey and all your family. Gordon. When he finally broke the news to mother that all the money was gone, he begged her to forgive him. Dear Barbara, all I want, sweetheart, is that you shall not lose faith in me. I have done since I have met you, darling, everything for you, and I will continue to do so. Please believe me. It wouldn't be the first marriage destroyed by the blacklist. Dear Gordon, 24 years ago, in Hollywood's Beth Israel Temple, I vowed to love you till death do us part. It's a promise I intend to keep, Angel. Remember, you married a New England product, built to last. Once again, to keep Jim and me from worrying, no one told us the bad news. New Year's Eve, they let Jim and me stay up past midnight. I silently made a few resolutions of my own. In a few months, I'd be 10, almost the age when most Mexican kids went out into the world and helped their families. I knew we needed each other more than ever. It was time I grew up too. When mother and Janet went to renew their tourist cards in the States, I resolved I wouldn't plead with them to take me anymore. And though I'd known for months Amudio was a dishonest man, I'd keep it to myself. Despite his promises, he'd never brought me my wrestling mask from Mexico City. I'd seen the same look in his eyes when he made his excuses that I'd seen in the faces of all the kids who called me a gringo. He hated us and would never keep his word. But no one would hear of it from me. I'd learned to keep my mouth shut and be a man. Blacklisted, episode three, A Long Way From Home, was performed by Ron Liebman as Gordon Kahn, Stockard Channing as Barbara Kahn, Carol O'Connor as J. Edgar Hoover, and Tony Kahn as the narrator. The cast also featured Julie Harris, Eli Wallach, John Randolph, Spalding Gray, Andreas Teuber, Susan Stamberg, Scott Simon, Andy Bowers, Andrew Kahn, Lainey Zira, Santiago Garfias, Jonathan Turok, 
Dalton Trumbo, Ruth Ficulis. Your announcer is Will Lyman. Blacklisted was produced, written, and directed by Tony Khan. Co-producer for Blacklisted is Harriet Ryzen. Associate producers are Sonny Dufo, Spencer Weisbroth, and Eileen Silverstone. Chief engineer is Kevin McLaughlin. Original music was composed and performed by Bill Bookheim. Major funding for this program came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities, and the Threshold Foundation, and with production help from KCRW Santa Monica and WBUR Boston. Blacklisted is a production of Tony Khan Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. This podcast of Blacklisted is sponsored by Audible.com, where you can download over 40,000 audiobooks, magazines, radio shows, and more. To download a free audiobook today, go to audible.com.